0: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 31 through 35.
1: Weird language, yet it's familiar to you. Why? Because you remember it from Revelation chapter 6. And what intrigues me the most is this whole idea that the heavens... You know, roll up together like a scroll. I can remember as a kid reading critical commentaries saying, you know, how quaint that language is. It sort of visualizes the Hebrew kind of the sky is like a canopy and it's rolled up. That's not what it says. The heavens are going to be rolled up like a scroll. Now, that could be just a figure of speech, except I don't think it is because it shows up in John's writing in Revelation the idea of the heavens rolling up like a scroll, right? I'll tell you where this comes home to you is that I don't, won't ask for a show of hands how many of you tend classes in vector analysis or tensor calculus. But in the language of that, okay, we got a few. You have our prayers. <laughs> the mathematicians speak of space and matter as being the result of space being uncurled and stretched out. It's interesting that Maimonides, a Hebrew sage writing in the 12th century, he's a Kabbalist, not a Kabbalah, but a Kabbalist, a mystic in terms of the Hebrew text. And his analysis of Genesis 1 is something I lean heavily on in our Genesis tapes for lots of reasons. I was first pointed to all of this by my friend uh, Jerry Schroeder, who operates out of Jerusalem, published a book. He's an Orthodox Jew that's a nuclear physicist, wrote a book called Genesis and the Big Bang. If you're interested in that sort of thing, it's worth reading. But the point is... Uh, he's the one to point out to me, that Maimonides pointed out, 800 years ago, several interesting things, not only that matter and energy, but also time and space had a beginning. That's a very sophisticated idea, but Maimonides inferred that from the shape of the letters in the Hebrew text of Genesis 1. He also came to the conclusion from Genesis 1 that the universe has ten dimensions, four are measurable and six are unknowable. Quaint stuff as a Kabbalist, cute writing, who takes it seriously and yet you walk across the street to a lecture on particle physics of 1991, and you discover that the particle physicists have discovered that the universe has not the three dimensions that we know of, length, width, and height, and time, four dimensions together. It has not four, but ten. Four of them are measurable, length, width, height, and time. We can measure those to a certain extent. The other six are unknowable because they're curled in less than 10 to the minus 35 centimeters. And if you're in particle physics and all that, there's a whole other thing, and I won't even get into that because not only is it difficult to understand, they've also taken to given the various properties whimsical names, it's a whole other study. The point is though, in the most advanced frontiers of modern science today, as the physicists grapple for a theory of everything to reconcile the discoveries of particle physics with the cosmological discoveries, they tie this all together with what they call superstrings, which requires what? Ten dimensions the same conclusion that Maimonides came to 800 years ago from the text of the Torah in the book of Genesis. But I get into all of this because when the Bible speaks that the heavens were stretched, they're using the current terminology of tensor calculus to describe our present understanding of space-time. So that's another thing. I won't bore you with all of that further, other than to make you sensitive, that if those of you that have an aptitude and interest to get into this area, you'll discover that we're finally catching up with the diligent students of the Torah who took the Torah seriously. Okay. Kind of fun. But then the heavens are going to be rolled together like a scroll. Ooh. The implications of that. It's another way of saying the same thing that Peter says in his letters that the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Yeah, I love that stuff. We go into school, and we learn about negative and positive charges, right? We know that like charges repel and unlike charges attract. How many you learned that in school? right? And then you go, a, a few weeks later, you're in class, you discover, well, the atom consists of a bunch of positive charges surrounded by electrons, and they're balanced, and that makes an atom fine. And he ask the teacher, well, wait a minute, if we've got all these positive charges in the nucleus of the atom, what holds them together? They don't know. They have very fancy ways of hiding the fact they don't know. And one of these times we'll get into a particle physics discussion, but I don't want to distract us any further than that, other than to say that we know what holds them together. For Colossians say that He, the one with whom we have due, is through whom all things are held together. It's literally all things consist in the King James, held together in the Greek. And it's interesting that there's a time when He ain't going to do it anymore. It's going to be interesting. You can talk about your quarks and your baryons and your particle physics. Hey, Interesting stuff. That's another evening. Let's go on. Verse 5 For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edom and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Now, the word, the reference to Edom here is, in my opinion, probably idiomatic. Yes, there's literal Edom, but as you study the Bible, you realize that the Edomites were the traditional enemies of Israel. So while it may be either literally, of course, it may be actually a what's called a synecdoche, a, 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 a metonym, a specific for the general. You often say "so and so prepares a fine table." Use that expression, right? Doesn't mean just the table; it means a fine home, fine appointment. You follow me? We sometimes will use uh, rhetorically a specific, meaning it connotatively, not denotatively, and that's what might be going on here. The Edomites, if you recall, when Moses wanted to cross the land of Edom in the wilderness wanderings, they were denied passage in Numbers 20. And uh, David later subdues the Edomites in 2 Samuel 9. And, of course, there's a revolt by the Edomites under Jeroboam when there's the civil war and all of that. They smote Judah. They actually aligned themselves with Judah's enemies under Ahaz when Ahaz was the king. And on it goes. Edom was the uh, twin of Jacob, if you will. It's kind of interesting that in one womb we had an Arab and a Jew. That's kind of fun. Think about that a while. Obadiah 3 deals with Edom and attributes to him the sin of pride. No surprise. And on it goes. So anyway, uh, it shall come down upon Edom and upon the people of my curse to judgment. So I don't think it's limited just to Edom in a narrow sense. I think it's used connotatively for Israel's enemies. Moving on, verse 6. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness. It is the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now here we're getting specific. And to get into this, we'll take some real discussion, but we'll postpone that when we get to Isaiah 63. Because in Isaiah 63, we have a physical description of the second coming of Jesus Christ, where they say, who is this guy with blood all over his clothes? It's the blood of my enemies. Why is the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the earth in Basra to fight the enemies of Israel? We'll deal with that when we get to Isaiah 63. The remnant in Israel are going to flee Jerusalem. They're going to hide in Petra or Basra, same place, different language. It's been suggested by some of the scholars that I'm getting very intrigued with that the prerequisite condition to the second coming of Jesus Christ, not the rapture, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is a petition for him to return by none other than Israel. And if that is a prerequisite condition, it might explain Satan's animosity to Jews even today. You can understand his animosity during the Old Testament days where he's trying to thwart the messianic purpose. That's what led to the Cain and Abel story. That's what led to the flood in Genesis 6. That's what led to the slaughtering of the Jewish children in Egypt. Satan behind the scenes trying to disrupt God's plan for the Redeemer. We understand all that as we go through. And as God focuses his prophecy and gives us visibility of what his plan includes, it allows Satan to focus his attack. Call of Abraham, aha, now I know where to hit. Under Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. And under Jacob, we have 12 sons. Which one? Aha, Judah. Jews are the royal line. So one by one, Satan's able to focus his attack. All the way to Bethlehem, the slaughter of the children under Herod. All satanic attempts to thwart the plan of God. Okay, great. Christ is born, goes through his mission, and is crucified on the cross. Why does Satan still to this day, why is this this satanic animosity towards Israel? Well, there's racial pressures. Yes, there is. But there isn't the intensity of focus on the other minority groups, like there is about the entire world against Israel. Why? It's supernatural. You can watch it on CNN. No, I mean that seriously. I wasn't just being flippant. It was interesting to me during the Persian Gulf crisis to watch the interviews of not the men on the street, but the intellectuals in Jordan, the academics. These are not slaughter, These are bright people. These are rational people, it would seem. And you'd hear them explain during the Persian Gulf crisis how this whole war was all Israel's fault. And you used to watch that. It was interesting. I, I happened to be at Hal's home. We were watching, you know, in the middle of the night. And Hal says, watch this. And I, he said, what do you mean? He says, watch it. It's supernatural. And you sit there and you watch it. It's interesting. Here you're not talking about people on the street that are just victims of some culture. We're talking about bright, educated, intelligent people trying to explain that all this was Israel's fault. Now here's Israel getting hit with scuds and not retaliating. And it's all their fault. You know, really interesting. And you begin to realize that what underlies the irrational attitude of Islam and, and all its uh, cousins on Israel, and you begin to realize it's satanic. Why? And Arnold Fruchtenbaum and other Hebrew scholars point out that a prerequisite condition for, the, for Jesus Christ to return is to be petitioned. Hosea chapter 5 deals with that. When we get to Isaiah 63, we'll develop this in more detail. It'll be a distraction at this time. Let's keep moving here. 9, yeah, and the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. Now there are passages like this that cause people to look for oil in Israel. I think that's a tough errand. Because this implies there's oil there. Yeah, maybe so, but I don't think it'll serve us until the Lord's ready and we'll have other problems then. Verse 10, it shall not be quenched, night or day, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation shall I waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. But the cormorant and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and also the raven shall dwell on it and he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Now here's another couple of words that I'm going to call your attention to but defer discussion of until we get to chapter 45. The words confusion and emptiness happen to be the Hebrew words tohu v'bohu. And the reason they're interesting words is they show up in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, verse 2, and the earth became without form and void. Active verb, became. When we get to Isaiah 45, verse 18, we'll discover that God says, I did not create it, tohu v'bohu. That's not surprising. You wouldn't expect God to create it in chaos, right? So this gives rise. This apparent contradiction gives rise to a conjecture, a possibility. It's a possibility I lean toward, but we'll deal with all of this when we get to chapter 45. We'll go into it carefully. The so-called gap theory. What it is and what it isn't. What it might be and what, how it's misapplied by some. We'll deal with that then. But this tohu bohu—you, those are Hebrew words that you'll want to make note of when the time comes. Without form and void in Genesis 1. Here it's translated, line confusion and emptiness. The word tohu means confusion. Here it shows it. God is not an author of confusion. And yet verse 2 of Genesis says, And the earth became confusion and emptiness. Really? Something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. And that's where some scholars believe was that period of time, not mentioned there, but clearly implied as a gap, is the duration during which Satan fell. And what was really going on there was a response to that. Throughout the scripture, there seems to be an implied accusation by Satan to God that you are not just and you have no love. And the whole response of the Scripture is God's rebuttal to that implied or expressed accusation. And that's interesting. That helps explain a lot. Anyway, we'll keep moving for now. Verse 12, They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all its princes shall be nothing. The thorns shall come up in its palaces and nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof, and it shall be an habitation of jackals and a court for ostriches. I might mention a few of these other animals. Uh, Early in chapter 11, we had the cormorant, which is possibly a pelican, a bittern, which may be a porcupine. There's some debate as to what the Hebrew words really allude to zoologically. Now, when you get to jackals and owls, the word jackals is a Hebrew word really meaning the howling ones. And it was a term used of jackals, but it may be something else. The word for owls actually means, the Hebrew word implies the daughters of screaming. It was a term used for owls, but the point I'm calling attention: some scholars think there may be something more sinister behind these words. In verse 14, The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow and screech, Owl shall also rest there and find for herself a place of rest. Again, we have wailers and howlers as the real Hebrew words here translated by the King James translators this way, and that's justified, and yet there may be something else here. The screech owl, the word is Lilith in the Hebrew, and that's also a word in the Hebrew that means female demon. If you've studied Hebrew uh, demonology, there's a half a dozen of these words that we generally see as demon or something else, but there actually, there's a hierarchy and there's a whole, at least a folklore, if nothing else, behind that. But the point is, Lilith is a word used of a female demon. That causes me to suspect, not sell or insist upon, but suspect, that behind this text, the idioms here are not zoological, but perhaps demonological in the vocabulary. And so that's a possibility, okay? Moving on to verse 15, there shall be the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow. There shall the kites also be gathered, everyone with her mate. This great owl root, again, is a strange word that can mean both arrow and snake. We're getting into really very murky areas in terms of what the Hebrew might be being used here connotatively. Moving on, verse 16. Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read, no one of these shall fail. None shall lack her mate, for my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. And he hath cast a lot for them, and his hand hath divided unto them by line, and they shall possess it forever. From generation to generation shall they dwell therein heavy stuff. We have one short chapter and we'll close the first 35 chapters of the book of Isaiah as a unit, if you will. Rather than leave you riding the freeway with the daughters of screaming and the howling ones uh, uh, echoing in your ear, let's shift gears and join Isaiah in chapter 35 where he focuses on the kingdom blessings of Israel. Okay? Let's quickly shift back into the light from the darkness. For chapter 35 verse 1. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like a rose. It shall blossom abundantly, and rejoice even with the joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, and the excellency of our God. Here again, Isaiah is picking up those poetic idioms from the previous chapter on the positive side, how it will be restored. Verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, Firm the feeble knees. That's you and I, isn't it? How many are feeble knees? Never mind, all right. Okay. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Praise God, He has. He has indeed. Remember that God is outside time. God is not someone who has lots of time. He is one outside the time domain altogether. That's why God can speak of something future as if it's already done. I've said it, I'll perform it. It's sequential to us because we're in the time domain. He's outside time altogether. That's why he can sometimes write prophecy in the past tense. Because as far as he's concerned, it's done. It's a done deal. Count on it. He will save you. Not quite correct. He already has. It's done. When did he choose you? He chose you before you chose him. When did he choose you? Ephesians 1 13. What does it say? 14. Before the foundation of the world. He's chosen you way back then. I love Wilbur Smith's crack. He says that. I'm glad he chose me then because if he looked at me now, he might change his mind. (laughs) Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart. H-A-R-T, like a deer. And the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. It's interesting, even in the English translation, you find, you can just feel the richness of expression of Isaiah. You can smell the grass, can't you? You can just hear the water Gushing. Verse 8, and a highway shall be. There's a highway. Isaiah seems to frequently bring this idea of a highway up. And uh, it's interesting that if you take that split into two words, it's very meaningful. The highway. The highway. Not trying to make a pun here. The way of God. The highway. That's exactly what the Christian walk was called in the book of Acts. Remember? The way, right? They didn't call themselves Christians. That came later. The way. Are you in the way, the way of God, the high way? And the highway shall be there, and a way as it shall be called, the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over, and it shall be for those the way-faring men, that is, those that walk in the way. Though fools shall not err therein. See, there's room for me. That's great. Verse 9, No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Hallelujah. Right on. What else can you say, huh? That's a good Hebrew word, too. Interesting, interesting passage. Now, we're going to obviously stop there very appropriately, not only because that time is about up, but also because chapter 36, 7, 8, and 9, the last four chapters of this section are historical. We'll take those up next time. That will position us for the dessert, (laughs) chapter 40 through 66. And right in the middle of that high ground is the highest ground, what some scholars call the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 and boy are there a lot of rabbis that wish it weren't there. They actually have made renderings of the book of Isaiah without chapter 53 in it. And if you ever run into that issue, let me highlight something to you. Invite your antagonist to come with you to Israel. Visit the Israel Museum next to which is this shrine of the book where they have enshrined the Dead Sea Scrolls, the major find of which is a complete, in fact, two copies, but one complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And right in the middle of the scroll, guess what? Chapter 53, just as we have it. Interesting thing. And we'll get to that, of course. That'll be the, the high ground. Fun stuff. The book of Isaiah. Whenever I see a passage like 10 where it speaks of the sorrow and sighing shall flee away, I'm reminded of the passage, book of Revelation and also Isaiah. Both places speak of he shall wipe away the tears of their eyes. How many remember that passage? You hear that? Well, wait a minute, gang. If we're there with the Lord, why are there any tears at all? There's no more sin, no more death. Why are there tears? No more pain, right? Why are there tears, my friends? He's wiping away tears. Okay, that means there's tears for him to wipe away. It would seem, unless it's just a phrase. Maybe it is. But the suggestion has been made, there is one thing that may bring tears. And that's our reflection upon the lost opportunities we had for him. See, it's an interesting idea. Whether it's valid or not, I'll leave you sort of think about it. But what's fascinating is it allows us to consider one thing in our lives... It doesn't take a lot of biblical perspective to recognize that the furniture is being moved into place for the final act. Whether it's next week, next month, or even as far away as five or ten years from now, we know that it's all coming home to roost, everything God said he's going to do. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. It means we should be focusing on our priorities. But it also means that if you have in your heart ever considered, making a heroic commitment for God. A heroic commitment for the God of the universe, for the person of Jesus Christ. Don't postpone it. Gee, I sure like to do that when I complete X. I'll sure do that at time T or T plus one or something. No, no, no. Do it now. If you're going to do it, do it now. Between you and the Lord. See, the grand adventure that you and I have an opportunity to participate in is His plan for your life. Not yours, not mine. I pursued my plan and made a mess of it. I'm like Peter. Ready, fire, aim. and uh, No, no. Stand back and let Him. He has a plan for your life. He won't insist on it. It's up to you. But he has an opportunity for you to participate in what I like to call the grand adventure. You don't have to. You can mope later that you missed the boat. Okay. Oh, you be saved. You're raptured. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a chance to participate in the most incredible adventure before mankind. An opportunity to participate with God in what he is about to do. And if you look around the landscape, you notice he's kind of in a hurry. There's a lot starting to happen awfully fast. Revelation says these things will shortly come to pass. We misunderstand the word shortly. It's from the Greek word takai, which came from the word tachometer comes from. Shortly in the sense of quickly. When they start, they're going to happen very quickly. By the way, they started. Temple being built in Jerusalem. The city of Babylon starting to be rebuilt. A supra-state emerging in Europe. We have the... Islamic republics of the Soviet Union positioning themselves so they intrigue with their Arab brothers against Israel, protected by a military assistance pact from the Republic of Russia. Sounds like Ezekiel 38, Magog, right? Ooh, wow, that's interesting. Well, every place you look, every place you look, it's getting positioned. Hey, time to do your homework, gang. Time to find out what the Bible says about today and tomorrow and a time to be sensitive to what opportunities God will put in your path for your specific opportunity in His grand adventure. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.